You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. Fixed income investing often takes a back seat in an investor's thoughts to the perceptively more exciting world of equities. And this is magnified by the recency of bull market conditions, which many will argue has been running since 2009. But as populations, or more importantly, investors age, fixed income increases in importance as you near retirement. And portfolio construction to effectively address the preservation of capital while providing a targeted income stream becomes a driver's seat conversation. And this asset class elicits so many questions. Are there particular areas where investors should be cautious? Where are the opportunities to find yield in this environment? How will fixed income markets fare as major central banks reduce monetary easing? And the big one, is the 60-40 portfolio still relevant? Fixed income, or to simplify the discussion for today's purposes, bonds, remain a relative and critical component of any portfolio to address income and capital preservation needs. And historically, this has always been the case. Masters like Benjamin Graham, the great economist and the father of value investing, suggested a long time ago that a portfolio mix of stocks and bonds for later stage investors is appropriate. So to unpack more of the intricacies around this important discussion, I'm happy to be joined today by portfolio manager Dominic Bellissimo, who is a key part of our core fixed income team here at Dynamic and leads our Toronto-based credit team, which is responsible for managing approximately $5 billion in assets. He has 25 years of investment experience and brings in-depth knowledge and a disciplined process to the analysis of North American corporate credits, but equally important, is a passionate educator on this particular asset class. So Dom, it's great to have you here. I'm going to jump right in. Let's break down the basics of what an investor needs to know about bonds. So bonds are a very large part of the investment universe, and it really doesn't receive nearly as much attention as equity, yet it is vital to the proper functioning of financial markets. Uh, in fact, most people would be surprised if I told them that the bond market is larger on a global basis than the equity market is. Now, simply put, bonds are an obligation to repay borrowed funds with interest. Now, for any of our listeners that have had uh, the opportunity to borrow money from a bank, let's say they've held a mortgage, uh, it's very much a similar idea. So unlike equities, where we have, often is the case, one share or one class of shares per company, in the case of bonds, you will have many or could have many bonds issued by the same company, by the same issuer. Uh, they may vary by a number of factors like maturity date, coupon payments, and covenants, these being the conditions to repay. Also, the issuers can vary. So we could have governments such as federal or provincial governments across the globe, as well as companies, uh, firms uh, across the globe as well. So what makes bonds attractive then to investors? Well, there are a couple of things that stand out. First being, it's a steady stream of income. So it's the cash flow that the bond itself generates from the coupon payments. And also, uh, they generally tend to represent less volatile securities than equities, for example. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first is that bonds have a fixed maturity date. So you know, uh, if all goes well, when you're expected to receive your principal back, unlike an equity, which is uh, an ownership in a long-term cash flow stream on the company. In the event of bankruptcy also, bond investors are repaid before the shareholders of a company. So you're higher up on the capital structure. So that priority also has a value to it. And so on the other side of that, what potentially makes them less attractive to investors? 
the one thing that stands out is the asymmetric risk. And, and by that, uh, we're referring to the upside versus the downside possibilities. So when you're looking at a bond uh, in exchange for a more stable cash flow stream and that promise and obligation to repay the coupon and the principal on a timely basis, investors receive effectively receive less upside. So if you buy a bond uh, at new issue and you hold it until maturity, the best you will do is the return of that coupon and the principal. So that is your return. So the upside is somewhat limited. That said, if a company or any issuer, government, were to file for bankruptcy and have trouble repaying, then bond investors would have to uh, run the risk of actually losing some of their principal in that scenario. So then, Dom, let's you know unpack this in a little bit more detail. Let's discuss a bond in the context of the capital structure and maybe define what I mean even by that question in your answer. When we're looking at the capital structure, it's really to understand the priority of payment. In, in any company, you have an ownership class, uh, which would be represented by equities, and then you have creditors and those that the company owes money to. So that would include bond investors and the bank, for example. So in the case of a, uh, a bankruptcy, so an extreme scenario where the company has to be closed down and the assets sold off and so forth, those entities that are higher up on the capital structure receive priority of payment before the owners uh, of the company. So in the case of bondholders, they stand ahead of the equity holders on the company. So if there's a wind down scenario, the bondholder would receive a priority of payment commensurate to the value of the assets that were left over after all the obligations. The equity holders would be after that. And so that is a, a definitely a, a positive for bondholders. And that if longer term, that is, uh, has provided them with, in a sense, a, a greater degree of comfort that they'll receive priority payment over the equity holders. It's interesting when we're considering this asset class, Dominic, that I think, you know, for most people, when they think of bonds, they think of, you know, safety or maybe less risk, but there are risks associated with investing in this particular asset class area. And the risks often seem more complex to people. So can we talk a little bit more about the considerations that a bond investor has to take into account? Sure. There definitely are risks and every investor has to be aware of what they are and how they could impact uh, their investment. And so I'll key in on two, two main risks, that being interest rate and the second being credit risk. So in the case of interest rate risk, it does really relate to the value of a bond changing uh, whenever interest rates or market yields change. So when a yield will rise, then ultimately the, the value of a bond will fall. And the opposite is true as well. So when yields will fall, bond prices will rise. And investors need to be aware of that risk and how uh, it is changing over time. Uh, with respect to credit risk, it really focuses on the borrower's ability to repay in a timely manner. So uh, how credit worthy is the borrower? Now, generally, when we think about governments, it's almost taken as an automatic that a government will repay. But if you work your way through to all the types of investors and issuers out there and get into corporations, the creditworthiness of each individual company and organization will vary uh, and change uh, drastically from one entity to another and also will change over time. So it's important to understand, is the creditworthiness of that borrower becoming better or worse, right? How is it changing and where is it likely to go? So Dom, as we think then about these two risks, as you mentioned, interest rate and credit risk, how have each of these manifested themselves in the market, in particular over the past decade or so? A lot has changed over the past decade, in fact, uh, since the global financial crisis in 2008. And we've seen 
risks, both interest rate credit risk, grow substantially in that time. And uh, investors need to be aware and understand what's going on. Uh, so understanding the past will give them a better perspective of how to work forward. And really, you can identify how these risks have manifested themselves by looking at the bond benchmarks, this being a proxy for the aggregate market. I'll break it down uh, first with interest rate risk. We've seen yields or interest rates decline steadily since the early 1980s. And since the financial crisis, they've hit all-time lows. And in fact, actually, uh, since last year, we touched the all-time low during the pandemic. And what has happened during this period is as yields have declined, interest rates have declined, companies and governments, all borrowers, have taken advantage of the lower borrowing costs. And so as maturities have come due, they've replaced those maturities originally, let's say five and 10 year terms with longer dated bonds. So their coupons, their payments are actually lower, but they're able to extend the term for 10 years and in some many cases, 30 years. And in doing so, the interest rate risk within the market has actually grown because now you have that many more 10-year, 20-year, 30-year bonds, even longer terms. And so as an investor, you need to be aware that there's more interest rate risk out there. In the case of credit risk, it has also grown uh, substantially since the uh, global financial crisis. So what we've seen is more of everything. So more companies borrowing in the public markets. Uh, part of the reason, a big part, is that the banks have curtailed their lending to companies today uh, to a greater degree than they did prior to the global financial crisis. So they're actually lending a little less and encouraging these companies to go out into the public markets and borrow. And so we're seeing more companies, a broader suite of companies, and in many cases, lower rated companies. So companies with a higher degree of credit risk, not that they're necessarily bad, or bad risks. It's just that there's more risk than what would have traditionally been the case prior to the global financial crisis. Now, if we were to look at one example in the investment grade market in Canada, the lowest rated companies within the investment grade market fall into a category called triple B. That's three Bs. Now, prior to the global financial crisis, that category was approximately 18% of the overall corporate market in Canada. Today, it's over 40%. So we've seen more companies issue more companies that are lower rated issue, and even companies that were once higher rated that have allowed themselves to fall into a lower rating category. So ultimately, that means more credit risk that you have to be able to understand, handle, and manage. All right. So that's a great overview of, as you say, where investors have to be aware of how these risks are unfolding you know, in the market. But when I think about an investor saying, I need to have fixed income portfolio, I understand the awareness I have to have around these two particular risk metrics. What are the actual implications then to me as a bond investor? There are a few for sure. Uh, one is that for investors, they cannot assume that what has happened in the past will continue to occur going forward and indefinitely. So will government yields, right? Will interest rates stay low? And will they continue to fall as we've seen over the last 40 years or so? You know, you can make a strong argument that on both sides of the ledger, whether they'll actually stay low or in fact could rise in materially and or we could see periods like we've seen this year where you see a significant move in a very short period of time. So investors need to understand that you could have a very large outsized move that would not have been the case in prior periods. Uh, with respect to credit risks, you need to be able to better manage these risks because of the, the change in the market composition. So you need to understand, you have to analyze a company, you have to be able to monitor 
and follow through with uh, that company and understand is their credit worthiness improving or worsening and be able to take advantage of, let's say, an opportunity or just simply get out of the way if you think things are getting worse and becoming uncontrollable. So I think you know, ultimately with more risk comes more responsibility. And uh, as, as investors, we need to be uh, aware of that. And the last point that I think investors need to be cognizant of is to understand the normal relationship between equities and bonds and how that might change. So traditionally, when equities rise uh, and equity valuations rise, bond valuations would decline. And then the opposite would be true. So when equities would fall, bond prices would rise. And so that inverse relationship has, by and large, uh, held true throughout the decades. Now, from a portfolio perspective, uh, fixed income might not actually behave quite the same way going forward as it did historically. And so that has significant implications to a portfolio. So in a traditional balanced portfolio where you have equities and bonds, they would look at, uh, let's say a normal split would be 60-40, 60% equities, 40% bonds. And uh, they would be tied in part to the expectations that equities would give you longer term growth perspective and opportunities, and that the bonds would provide some pretty decent downside protection in the case uh, that we went into a, a rocky period for the markets. But does that make sense today, right? With government yields as low as they are, right? With negative correlations between the bonds and the equities, will they remain in place? So it's not quite so simple. It's not quite as obvious. And I don't think you can expect that a relationship between the two will behave today or going forward as they did in the past. And so investors need to better understand that. Uh, and so that the choices for investors have grown and become more challenging when you're looking at fixed income, especially when you're combining in a portfolio with equities. So if we think about you know the diversity probably of our listenership right now, some already being invested in this space, some thinking about you know having to be at some point in the near future, what should they be doing differently or thinking about differently? And I'll preface that question with, we're going to assume that they are going to seek out the services of a qualified financial advisor because this is a difficult space to do on your own. Absolutely. Investors going forward uh, really need to broaden their perspective. So historically, uh, an investment in fixed income was seen as a ballast, right? It's an anchor against a choppy market. Uh, you have that steady cash flow stream. It provides you nice downside protection when risk assets are selling off. But today, the choices have grown, uh, and it includes not just the ballast perspective, but also opportunities in credit-related as well as alternative uh, investments as well. Well, then, Don, let's unpack that a little bit more. So you mentioned ballast, and you talk a little bit about you know bonds with credit risk and alternatives. So can we dive a little bit deeper in exactly what you mean by that? Sure. It's complicated. It has grown, and I think it's a point worth highlighting. So in the case of, of ballast, uh, we're really focusing in on how fixed income has been viewed on a more traditional sense, that being a long-only investment that is an allocation, let's say in a bond fund, is an allocation to both government securities as well as corporate securities. Uh, traditionally, there's been a heavy reliance on managing the interest rate risk, so to protect some downside there and the proper asset allocation. So how many government and how many corporate securities you should be holding and, and moving and toggling between the two. So as the name states, it's really a ballast and it was, it's meant to be a ballast and provide protection in a down market with some income and even potentially some upside capture if yields were to fall. 
but it is a ballast. Now, over time and over the last decade or so, we've seen a growth of opportunities in both the credit and alternative side within the fixed income markets. So looking at credit opportunities, the credit universe has grown and uh, in Canada, but in the US and globally. And with that, there are more credit focused mandates that would be long only, but that they would need and focus on managing the credit risk and trying to capture additional income and potential for capital gains that come with that. And so you would be looking at focusing in on different markets, for example, you can focus on the investment grade market or the high yield market or both. Whether an investment is in the Canadian credit markets or if there's geographic diversification like the United States or even beyond on a global basis. And so I think that the proliferation within the credit environment has created opportunities that have given investors now options that even 10 years ago weren't there. And on that same theme, looking at alternatives. So this area has also grown over the last number of years. And when we mention alternatives, what we're referring to, it could be a couple of things. The first is the asset type itself. So is it an alternative type of fixed income instrument, such as private debt, not to be confused with the public debt markets, which is what we've been talking about today? Or is it in fact related more to the investment strategies uh, that are allowed within the fund or the investment vehicle? And the investment strategies would vary materially from, let's say, a more traditional long-only mandate. And it can vary a few ways. So looking at, as an example, the use of leverage to augment returns or unique trading strategies such as shorting bonds and the benefits that one might be able to capture either downside protection or uh, on an upside as well. Dominic, equity investors have been hearing a lot about alternatives on that side of the equation and the fact that alternatives are really starting to become a legitimate third asset class when we think about you know, the 60-40 portfolio and the challenges around there. Should we be thinking the same then about fixed income as well? Absolutely. With the growth of alternatives over the last decade, I think investors should consider them as a legitimate uh, allocation to fixed income within their portfolios. Uh, of course, if it makes sense, but uh, but it has grown and it is worth uh, looking into for sure. So with a better awareness now of um, some of these uh, strategies and alternatives you talk about, bonds with credit risks, alternatives, this use of ballast, how does an investor then consider allocation into these particular buckets within a fixed income portfolio? So there's a, a few things. First, I'm a big proponent and I know the company has always been a big proponent of getting the right advice. So I think it's important that investors today understand that the options available to them are broader. So we talked about ballast, we talked about credit, we talked about alternatives. So that is a great starting point when they speak to their advisor. And using that as, as an opportunity to understand what options are available and then what options make sense you know, for every investor. And, and it will vary, I mean, obviously life cycle and risk tolerances and so forth. Another thing to consider, which is key, is active management. So we've established that the fixed income market is riskier today and has a lot more going on today than it did at any point in the past, uh, especially since the financial crisis. And with that, investors need to be aligned with managers that are willing to add and subtract risk in a thoughtful manner, thoughtful process, and in a very deliberate way. If you are focused on a benchmark. My belief has always been if you're focused on a benchmark, you will not beat the benchmark, but you also 
uh, run the risk of being exposed to the inherent risks that have only grown within the benchmark. And active management needs to be a cornerstone going forward. Dominic, we've talked a lot about you know the historical background of how this particular market, this asset class has evolved and how it's changed. Believe it or not, not everybody wakes up in the morning and looks at how overnight markets did or turns on CNBC or picks up the financial side of the newspaper. So if we think about some of the news and what people may have read about or paid some attention to, they would have heard things like taper tantrum 2.0. Can you talk a little bit about what it means when we hear the word taper tantrum as an example, and, and if it's the same as what we've seen uh, historically, like back in 2013. The taper tantrum that you referred to is uh, really referencing a period back in the second half of 2013. At that time, the Federal Reserve Chairman, uh, Ben Bernanke, had announced that the Fed was planning on tapering its asset purchases. And with that announcement, it really caused a huge negative impact on, on the bond markets and the markets uh, across the globe also the risk markets and equities. And what happened was bond yields rose materially. And, and when that happens, as we know, bond yields rise and the value of the bonds fell. But it, it didn't just focus on government bonds. It also impacted corporate bonds. Uh, and investors were selling fixed income indiscriminately, fearing that uh, the yields would continue to rise uh, over an extended period of time. As we entered 2021, we heard a lot of talk and a lot of comparison to the 2013 taper tantrum. And it's understandable. If you use yields and government yields and, and interest rates as your main reference point, because back then they were very low and today they're very low. And so the expectation is today that as the world normalizes and we get back on our feet, that yields would have to rise. And as they would expect to rise from a very low point, that we run the risk of a repeat of what happened in 2013. So it's not uncommon within the markets to look at prior periods and to try to establish a comparison. But the risk with that is what happens if it's different? What happens if it doesn't actually occur? And that's really what we're seeing today. Earlier this year, government yields started to rise materially. And uh, the concern would be that we'd see sell-off in the credit markets. But in fact, the credit markets have not actually sold off. They've remained very strong and buoyant. We've seen money entering the credit markets on a consistent basis week after week. And there's a few reasons for that. So today, uh, the Federal Reserve is much more cautious in their communications uh, to the markets than they were in 2013. So they've been reassuring the markets, it seems almost on a daily basis, that any actions they have will take a long time to play out. And they will be very careful and reiterating a patient message uh, at every opportunity. The next factor to consider is that credit investors have continued to support the market. As I mentioned, we've seen a steady stream of inflows, and that's really been supported by the view that the economy, uh, global economy, uh, will continue to improve. And that provides a tailwind to risk assets the credit markets and so forth. So if, if you think about when would you like to be investing in a corporate bond, just simplistically, it's when the economy is getting better, not worse. Uh, and that's where we are today. And then lastly is that despite the rise in government yields so far, they are still close to their all-time pre-pandemic lows. And so the incremental yield that you have from a corporate security actually is substantial, relatively speaking. And so it gives you that incremental uh, return that many investors are looking for. 
So we really haven't seen a taper tantrum too. We've seen a sell-off in the government markets, but it's been contained to that market. Taking into account then this continued support you mentioned that credit investors have shown to the market and the fact that you, you, know, you still believe incremental returns an investor can earn are substantial. Where do you see then the biggest opportunities in credit unfolding? And as a portfolio manager, how are you positioning around these beliefs and opportunities? So we're really focusing in on a few themes. Uh, the first being looking at reopening credits. So companies uh, that are in industries that were most hurt by the pandemic and that are now bouncing back. So the auto industry is a very good example of that. And so they should benefit from a stronger tailwind and have the greatest bounce back. And then the next would be, and, and specifically within the investment grade space, lower rated companies that have larger risk premiums that are now better able to strengthen their balance sheets and get back on their feet and move forward in a more normal fashion. And, and that might be companies within the triple B space, for example. So I mentioned that triple B is the lowest rated category. So there are still opportunities. We find them. Companies that need to borrow, we will lend at the right price. And I think that as the world normalizes, uh, these opportunities will prove fruitful from a, a return perspective. Dominic, this has been a great overview today. Fixed income investing, as we mentioned at the top, it's a complex subject, but a critical component of portfolios and portfolio construction, especially for investors that are either nearing retirement or already in retirement. So I really appreciate these insights. And thank you to all of our listeners that joined us today and listened into this particular podcast. It is not one that generally gets the same attention as its equities counterpart, but is no less important. If you would like any more information about some of the subjects that we discussed, please visit us at dynamic.ca. And as we've already mentioned, seek out the services of a qualified financial advisor to make sure that you're comfortable and that your portfolios are positioned effectively when we're thinking about fixed income investing. On behalf of all of us at Dynamic Funds, we continue to wish you good health and safety. And once again, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.